0: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move and here's your need to know. Marks Metamove, move, Facebook reportedly planning a new name and a rebrand. Squid Surge, Netflix gets its tentacles into more subscribers. And Ma or Mirage, Alibaba shares jump after the founder is seen in Spain. It's Wednesday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Wednesday, where we see something very fishy going on in the global business world. Netflix reporting a whale of a Q3 with high hopes for Q4, thanks to Hitch show Squid Game. It's hooked millions of global viewers but failed to reel in additional Americans. We'll explain why. All this as Facebook is floating a corporate rebranding. And in Washington, D.C., Democrats are attempting to land a deal on fiscal spending as early as this week. No more floundering. Meanwhile, Bitcoin trying to scale new heights in crypto land. It's less than 1% away from record highs following the launch of a historic U.S. Bitcoin futures ETF on Tuesday that went swimmingly. The ProShares ETF rising almost 5% on Tuesday. Call it perhaps some crypto shark and awe. Why? Well, because it was the second best fund debut ever. U.S. futures, meanwhile, resemble still waters trying to catch a bit after five winning days. The profit piranhas, though, will be out in force again today. We've got Tesla and IBM reporting after the closing bell. And across the pond, European stocks are a touch softer too. But UK inflation taking a surprise dip last month too. Welcome news on the data front there. Asia, though, taking the bait. Take a look at that with Hong Kong closing at near six-week highs. China tech continuing to bounce as low valuations lure investors. And as I mentioned, Alibaba rising 6% on hopes for the company's new server chip, just as founder Jack Ma reportedly resurfaces over in Europe. A sign perhaps that Beijing is softening its tech crackdown or merely a red herring. I'll clam up now. (laughs) Let's get right to the drivers. Reports say Facebook is set to give itself a new name. The Verge says we'll hear about the rebrand next week, just as the company fends off a hail of criticism from regulators. But is that pure coincidence? Brian Stelter joins me now. Someone's putting words into my mouth, but they are the correct words. What do we think of the timing on this? I mean, it was never, it was never going to be a good time. Perhaps it makes business sense. What do we Yeah, a month to of
2: scandal, weeks of scandal, months of scandal, then a name change. I mean, look, it literally reminds me of tobacco companies that have rebranded to get away from names like Philip Morris. You know how they give new corporate refreshes? Obviously, a very different situation with Facebook. This is probably more akin to Google creating Alphabet. So Alphabet, of course, the umbrella for Google and other ventures. And I think that's the, the vision Mark Zuckerberg has, according to The Verge, that the Facebook app, the blue app that everyone knows, the flagship app with all its troubles, that that is just one of many parts of a company umbrella that also includes Instagram and WhatsApp and most importantly in this conversation, the metaverse. We know that Zuckerberg has been very focused on uh, on the metaverse, uh, on AR and VR, on new products that bring people into a virtual world that is more and more like real life. And that's the indication that next week he's going to be announcing this new name at the company's annual Connect Conference on October 28th. Maybe it'll leak out sooner and already lots of journalists have lots of ideas for the new name. Uh, but you know, I think it's a very version of Alphabet, Julia, but in at in a time that will help distract from Facebook, the flagship apps troubles both real and, um, and future.
0: Yeah, I have to say, and we can come back to this, that most of the names that I've seen on social media, they're not very flattering, uh, quite frankly. <laughs> and I think, you know, and we can talk about this more. And, and uh, I think confusion for most people about what on earth the metaverse is and to what extent uh, Facebook wants to get away from this sort of social media platform. And we all felt I think, how difficult it was without WhatsApp when they had that outage a couple of weeks ago. So they are about right. more than just social, social media and a social media platform. Um, but, you know, in a challenged company sense, if this weren't Facebook and it weren't, and Mark Zuckerberg didn't have the power that he had, you'd probably <laughs> change the CEO or you'd shake up management in these kinds of situations with this degree of challenge. Facebook, of course, can't do that because Mark Zuckerberg's so powerful. So what do you do? You, you shake up the name. And right. The you
2: rebrand. You, you put on a new logo, a new face, some new colors, a new color scheme. You know, you renovate the old house because you can't get a new house. I yeah. think with Zuckerberg, certainly his interest is in is, is not in um, how to uh, create a better poke button or like button, right? His interest is in <laughs> what he believes is the future of the internet, the metaverse. He wants to create something for the next 20, 30, 40 years and beyond and not look backwards. Of course, so much of what's happening here in Washington and elsewhere is about looking both backwards and at the present day at how this technology is hurting individuals. We know Francis Haugen, the whistleblower, is going to be doing more in public in the coming weeks, speaking to uh, regulators in Europe and beyond. So, you know, there are going to continue to be damning stories about Facebook. In fact, uh, we know many news outlets are working on uh, going through some of those leaked documents as we speak and working on stories about further revelations from the Wall Street Journal's Facebook files. So this is going to go on and on for Facebook. Whether we call the company something else or not won't change those real problems, but it might make everybody at the company feel better. It might make Zuckerberg feel better.
0: Yeah. Um, favorite name so far, Brian? Do you have your own? Uh,
2: somebody mentioned Horizon, which is a product they've been working on internally. Horizon. That has a kind of alphabet sound to it. You know, generic, could mean anything, could mean nothing at all.
0: I, I was going for Face Palm, <laughs> Like Prince. You're formerly known as Prince. Formerly known oh, as. Face palm, the emoji. And also you hold your phone in your palm while you're WhatsApping or whatever it is. So actually, it does work. It does work. Yeah, <laughs> I'm great. not sure they're going to go with that, though. Brian, <laughs> great to have you with us. Thank Thanks. you, Horizon. Brian Stiles are there. Thank you. Well, what do you think of Facebook and what could it call itself in the future? We do need some ideas. You can send them to me on Twitter at CNN and I'll try to read out the few of the best ones at the end of the show. No ones, please. Okay, let's move on now to a Squid Game win for Netflix. The Korean hit show Boosting signs up as it grips new viewers in Asia. But closer to home, the streaming giant grappling with a storm over a comedy special. Frank Pelota joins us on The Story. Frank, great to have you with us. Let's talk about the excitement around Squid Game, the rise that we saw over 4 million new subscribers, yet they're really struggling to add new subscribers in the United States and Canada. Have we hit a ceiling there despite what they do as far as content is concerned. So on the
3: surface here, you have 4.4 million more subscribers. That's the good news for Netflix. Netflix is very happy about that because after the last two quarters of sluggish growth, it seemingly is back on the right track. But let's dig a little bit deeper or to use the C puns we've been using, dive in and talk a little (laughs) bit more about what's going on in the United States and Canada, where a year ago they had pretty much the same. uh, They've only kind of gone up a million subscribers in the last year. Yeah, they got back a lot of the subscribers they lost. They lost about 400,000 subscribers last quarter in the second quarter, but in this quarter they went up 70. So it's kind of like a saturated market there. And Netflix kind of knows that, which is why they have said, that their point of emphasis is really a global expansion. And if you look at Asia Pacific, that is half of the growth of everything. That's about 2.2 million subscribers there. But the problem for Netflix is that their rivals are still growing in the United States, and it's kind of sluggish a little bit everywhere. So it's 4.4 million subscribers. Good. It's definitely not bad. It's not one of their most phenomenal, you know, quarters ever. They've had bigger growth in the past, but it's definitely not, uh, you know, the worst case scenario either. It's just kind of a very sluggish, boring type of earnings for them. And, and but what now uh, investors are going to look forward to is that they had a nice Q4 forecast, and we'll see where they go from here. So it it was a good, it was fine, it was a decent uh, earnings report, but not the best in the world, I would say. And Squid Game for the for them for that mention also came out in the middle of September. So the quarter ended at the end of yeah. September to have a little bit, it's kind of riding that wave rather than having a huge impact on it.
0: Yeah, the bump is to come. It's all about the uh, Q4 forecasts as far as the benefits of that are concerned. Yeah, for me, it was also also about everybody else. I mean, 74 million now is a subscriber base in the US and Canada. It sort of explains why perhaps they're going to try and push into gaming. But also, I wonder whether this is a ceiling for the Disneys, for HBO for some of the other players, Prime for example, just in terms of the subscriber base, or they steal from that 74 million, but um, I want to talk about The Closer. Obviously there was controversy after the airing of The Closer, the suggestion that the, um, Dave Chappelle was sort of um, the way to be careful about saying this um, offensive, let's call it that, to the transgender Mm -hmm. community, an apology from Netflix yesterday.
3: Yeah, basically uh, co-CEO Ted Sarandos said that he he was sorry that he made mistakes, that he wished he kind of led a little bit more with humanity rather than just kind of, you know, the response that he had. But if you really look at this entire controversy, it's it's somewhat and could be argued, and I'm arguing it right now, is of Netflix's making because Netflix is this huge apparatus. It is something that is always kind of, the company line has always been, we are going to have every kind of content for every kind of person. And we're also going to let artists be artists that can lead to something like a Squid Game that basically is a South Korean show that comes out of nowhere without promotion and is a viral hit, and is the biggest launch they've ever had. But it also means that you're going to have things like Dave Chappelle, which is offensive to millions of people, but you can't kind of put the genie back in the bottle. If you're going to let artists be artists and have content for everyone, that also includes potentially content that could offend many of your subscribers.
0: Yeah, content on screen doesn't directly translate to real-world harm. That was the email and he qualified that to your point and said, look, that maybe lacked humanity. Yeah, content for all, but at times it is going to be personal for some. Frank Pelota, thank you so much for that. Okay, Alibaba investors on alert. Founder Jack Ma reportedly now in Europe. The South China Morning Post, which Alibaba owns, says he's traveling outside of China for the first time since his business empire came under Beijing scrutiny. Alibaba shares also jumping after the company released a new chip. Paula Monica joins me with more. Two big stories. But let's hone in on Jack Ma, a sighting and a sighting most importantly, I think, outside of China.
4: Yeah, obviously there had been, I think, some significant concerns on the part of investors, Julia, about where Jack Ma was and if the Chinese government was really cracking down on him since he is arguably the most well-known and most influential tech CEO in China, so this news you're seeing some reports suggesting that he's in Spain on a tour to try and gain some knowledge about the agricultural business and more about tech. Other reports saying that he's on his yacht vacationing. It might be a combination of the two, a little bit of a business, uh, you know, mixed with pleasure, if you will. But clearly, investors are happy to see the Jack Ma is a presence again even though he is not the CEO of Alibaba he is definitely the most well-known figure with that company and there were concerns because Alibaba tried with to have a spin-off of uh, an IPO of Jack another Jack Ma controlled company Ant Financial and the Chinese government Beijing you know cracked down on that and that was perceived as a sign that they were slapping Jack Ma on the wrist and They've done this with other big Chinese tech companies as well, which has clearly raised concerns about whether or not China really is serious about becoming more of a free-ish market.
0: Yes. And I think when you start to see him reappearing again, in investors' minds at least, it perhaps signals some end or some completion or the approach of the completion of that tech crackdown and that cleanup. So... Maybe we're uh, adding two and two and making five, but that's what investors, I think, are are suggesting, at least with the share price overnight. Quickly on this, pool, how quickly can you do it? Chips, another interesting one for Alibaba as all of these tech giants around the world try and increase or reduce their vulnerability on uh, external forces and chip suppliers.
4: Yeah, definitely. Quickly, Julia, what's important here is that Alibaba is developing a chip for its own servers and cloud business, which competes with the likes of Microsoft, Google, Amazon. So this is not something they're going to be selling to consumers. You're not going to all of a sudden get a smartphone that has an Alibaba chip in it. It's Alibaba trying to lessen its reliance on outside foreign vendors that it needs to power that cloud juggernaut, which is a huge and increasingly important part of the Alibaba growth story.
0: Yes, a story we shall continue to discuss, I'm sure, at many points in the future. Paul and Monica, thank you so much for joining us on that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Britain's Queen Elizabeth has cancelled a trip to Northern Ireland after doctors advised her to rest for a few days. Buckingham Palace didn't provide further details, but a source tells CNN the matter was not COVID-related. The palace says she is in good spirits and looking forward to visiting Northern Ireland in the future. And in the day ahead, a report by Brazilian senators is expected to recommend criminal charges against the president over his response to the pandemic. The 1,200-page document effectively blames Shia Bolsonaro for hundreds of thousands of COVID deaths. It will accuse him of crimes against humanity and other offences, but senators have decided not to call for charges of mass homicide or genocide. CNN's Shasta Darlington joins us now from Sao Paulo. Shasta, great to have you with us. They may recommend criminal charges, but how likely is he to face them?
1: Well, that's a very good question, Julia. Um, As you mentioned, we're expecting this final report to be released by the Senate Commission within the next hour. Um, it, It is expected to recommend that Bolsonaro be charged with crimes against humanity, alleging he intentionally let coronavirus spread through Brazil, killing hundreds of thousands with the aim of reaching herd immunity and reopening the economy. Uh, but it may not go very far after that. The the report is expected to be published very soon. The panel, the 11-person Senate panel, won't vote on it until next week because it is over 1,000 pages. They need time to review it. And while they're expected to approve it, it then gets sent to the attorney general. The attorney general is an ally of Bolsonaro, and it really isn't expected to go much further from there. Uh, What's interesting, though, is this just this comes after months of testimonies and debates. Uh, Brazilians were riveted to to this inquiry as though it were some kind of a soap opera tuning in every day. Um, And so the the Senate pandemic parliamentary inquiry was able to highlight a number of accusations, Um, The the text that has been prepared that we're expecting to come out soon blames Bolsonaro's policies for the deaths of more than 300,000 Brazilians, half of the nation's COVID-19 death toll. And it also recommends criminal charges against dozens of other people, including three of Bolsonaro's sons, several government officials and two private companies. Uh, it has kept uh, the pandemic, the government's handling of the pandemic, uh, the poor uh, performance in the economy in the headlines on a daily basis. And this has really hit Bolsonaro hard. His approval rating uh, has sunk to record lows. And election, it, it, he's hoping to run for re election next year. So even if this doesn't lead to criminal charges, it has already had a big impact on Bolsonaro and his government, Julia.
0: Absolutely. Shutter Darlington in Sao Paulo there. Thank you so much for that. OK, so to come here on First Move, Covid-19 triggered a boom in goods demand and a shipping crisis. Flexport say smart logistics may be the way out. But first, investing is the key to net zero. But who will help fund it? Luxembourg has a plan. We speak to their finance minister next. Welcome back to First Move and a woozy Wednesday for U.S. stock sluggish action pre-market as investors await a fresh batch of corporate results. But keenness for carriers, United set for a tantalizing takeoff. It's up some 1.5% pre-market after posting a smaller than expected Q3 loss. Its CEO saying, quote, recent headwinds are turning into tailwinds, specifically citing the return of business travel. That said, carriers remain concerned about rising fuel costs. Shares of United and Delta have weakened in the past month as Brent crude prices have soared. Wow, look at that divergence. Energy angst in China too. Beijing ordering its coal mines to produce as much as possible to help ease the power crunch that is forcing factories to slow down. Beijing, if you remember, ordered mines to reduce production earlier this year to help meet carbon emission targets. And as the IEA told us last week on this show, Carbon dioxide emissions are now set for their second biggest increase in history this year. And the timing of that starting at the end of the month. Decision makers gather in Glasgow for COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference, and the stakes could not be higher. Unless we limit global warming to one and a half degrees Celsius, we will see catastrophic flooding droughts and ocean die-offs. If we do nothing, we hit that limit by 2030 and that warning from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So we need to get to net zero and we need to get there fast. The question is... How do we pay for it? A small finance hub at the heart of Europe believes it has the answer to that question. And joining us now is Pierre Gramier. He's the Luxembourg's Minister of Finance. So fantastic to have you on the show and great to talk to you. Please help us. We talk about the need to scale up investment and to do it quickly. We don't often talk about the financing required. Your wisdom, please. What do we need to consider?
5: Well, Julia, I'm glad you asked that question uh, ahead uh, of uh, COP26 in Glasgow uh, that is coming soon and uh, that I will attend. Uh, In fact, uh, what we have uh, concentrated a lot on was how much public finance we can attract to the issue of uh, climate change. In fact, I should say to the issue of climate crisis because we're already in the middle of a climate crisis and not focused uh, enough on how we can... uh, crowd in the private sector because the billions of the public sector will not be enough. We need trillions. So how can we get the uh, financial sector play its role? So what we need to do is have the private sector invest more in green projects on the one hand, and we need to focus on sustainable finance. That means green the finance sector itself, heavy having the right standards, and helping get to the goals. That's not an easy one, but that's the only way we can do that.
0: And we need to get financing out to renewable energy projects at incredibly competitive rates. I mean, many of the governments still around the world, uh, AAA like yourself, are financing themselves at negative rates. We need to pass on some of those benefits, surely, in terms of financing to those that are operating in the private sector that are trying to target greener energy investment.
5: Yes. In fact, uh, the, the climate goals are very ambitious and we need to organize the transition. And the right. transition can only be organized by financial players, by uh, shortening the use of fossil fuel projects, but not cuti- cutting them in a minute. So how to organize this, uh, the stretching of the period or the reducing of the period can only be done by finance. Governments can play a role uh, by de-risking some projects. We do that in Luxembourg together with the European Investment Bank as the country takes the first loss risk, the EIB the second one, and then projects become bankable that otherwise wouldn't be. So that's what you call blended finance. And the other thing that we need is standards. We need to avoid greenwashing. In fact, we are in in a situation where we have three challenges at the same time. I call it a tricky triangle. We need to avoid greenwashing, we need to avoid stranded assets, and we also need to avoid social stranding. So, how to bring about the three things together So, to also have acceptance in the public, that's the very, very difficult question.
0: I mean, you raise so many important questions there. I mean, if I look at Luxembourg's uh, investment fund industry, I believe it's just over $5 trillion now. That's a lot of money. Even just a tiny little piece of that goes into sort of ESG investments, for example. Um, Is it too little, actually, that's being funneled in that direction? And do we need, whether it's Luxembourg or, or broader, perhaps, if we're talking pension fund money, for example, specific quotas on how much of that money has to be invested in these green projects, particularly, to your point, if you can offset some of the risk and ensure return.
5: Uh, This is exactly it. Now, there's also some hope. Uh, Let's uh, face it. The first green bond was issued by the European Investment Bank in 2007, and we reached uh, 1 trillion green bonds by 2020. This year alone, we're going to have one trillion sustainable bonds being issued so we do in one year what we did in 14 so there's a tremendous acceleration and that's uh, good news we have uh, the standards becoming clearer so that we can all compare these standards we're not there uh, yet but i can tell you uh, i see uh, a lot of initiatives There, the european union has issued a green bond of 12 billion euro just yesterday at the Luxembourg Green Exchange, so you you see that things are moving ahead fast. We also have the initiative, uh, the um, Bank Alliance for Net Zero, which now uh, gathers together 80 banks, representing one-third of all banking assets. So you see the private sector has understood that they are key. Uh, Not only are they key, without them we cannot reach the Paris goals, which are very ambitious.
0: Very quickly, and then I want to move on to other subjects. Your point about stranded assets to me, um, I think, is also vital. And you've also said we have to be very careful not to completely cut investment to fossil fuels because we need them during the transition period, particularly given what we're all experiencing, I think around the world with rising commodity costs and energy price costs in particular. Are we getting that balance right? Because certainly from what I hear from the private sector in certain quarters is that suddenly any fossil fuel involvement is a really dirty word. And there is a danger that prices spike in the short term because we're under investing in one and not yet investing enough in renewables. Well,
5: the present uh, spike in uh, oil prices and gas prices just shows that we are not in the right spot. Uh, As soon as the economy picks up, truly we we come out of uh, lockdowns and it's a spectacular V-shaped recovery. Uh, The only way we seem to be able to respond to the higher demand of energy is by reverting to fossil fuels. That must change. So it means our capacities uh, of renewable energy are, are too low, or of cleaner energies. And here again, uh, it's finance that must kick in. We also mm-hmm. must uh, make sure that we price in the CO2 emissions in the cost of energy. That's not being done yet. And we need to do that at world level. And I think that's one of the key questions that needs to be addressed in Glasgow at COP26.
0: Yeah. I mean, everyone wants governments to be more uh, ESG friendly but then if you tell the consumers that prices are going to rise or rise further then suddenly people aren't so keen on on ESG so it's finding a balance there too. Um, we will come back to this conversation. I, I want to talk about Luxembourg's decision to sign on to the uh, OECD plan for a 15% minimum tax. What's that going to yes. mean for Luxembourg?
5: Well you know we have been closely involved in the negotiation uh, inside the OECD And uh, we're very uh, pleased that we have found a common agreement because it will create a level playing field in in the taxation world. You know, the landscape of taxation had not changed for a hundred years, and it had uh, led to to lots of uh, distortion. Uh, For Luxembourg, it is important that we now have a solution at the global level so that uh, we can focus on other things. You know, my country is a AAA country. You mentioned it, we are very predictable countries country, investors like that. And we will have no uh, issue with having a minimum effective tax rate of 15% if everybody else applies that. And that's how it is looking now. And so we wish that we can have a quick implementation of that to have a kind of peace in the international tax landscape.
0: Uh, Minister, for all your efforts in sustainable finance and and diversification of the economy, we do often refer to you, and it's maybe lazy journalism, but it to some degree is true of the focus of finance and the importance of finance, particularly um, after Brexit and the shift that we've seen from investment industry um, members towards Luxembourg. you were mentioned several times in the in the Pandora papers and it's raised these questions once again of whether Luxembourg still remains a, a conduit for diverting financial flows to to offshore tax havens. What's your response to those that still throw those accusations around? Is there any truth to them?
5: Well let alone that uh, we are mentioned uh, very little uh, in those uh, papers. (laughs) Relatively, Uh, yes. Relatively little. Uh, I think the the key here is that transparency is happening. I mean, Luxembourg abandoned bank secrecy back in 2014. And uh, it's good like that because uh, we, we haven't lost in attractiveness because uh, this was not acceptable anymore. We need a fairer landscape, and that's what we have. And in fact, such an inquiry would probably not have been possible five to ten years ago. So mm. the transparency is, is just helping us uh, get to the next step in, in a world uh, that, as everyone likes it, with more fairness where everybody pays his fair share of taxes.
0: Yes, a brighter world, a fairer world. So, thank you so much for joining us on First Move. I look it's forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much, Minister of Finance. There, thank you, sir. Okay, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks up and running this Wednesday, and a modestly higher open. The Dow is only around half a percent away from records, helped along by continued strong Q3 earnings results. Telecom giant Verizon is the latest firm to top estimates and boost full-year guidance. Netflix meanwhile lower in early trade a good Q3 but concerns about slowing future growth Deutsche Bank I think the uh, having an impact here too downgrading them to a hold saying the share price has got a little ahead of itself Biotech Novavax meanwhile plunging in early trade off almost 22% amid reports of new manufacturing problems for its COVID vaccine Now, to get the overview of the global shipping crisis, you need to take a step back a little. This live map from marinetraffic.com shows the location of all the cargo vessels in the world. My next guest likens it to a global traffic jam. When you consider every consignment requires customs clearance and onward documentation, shippers and suppliers can end up stuck in the slow lane. Flexport moves much of the process to the cloud, and we're talking not just ships, but also air and rail freight and trucks too. Ryan Peterson is CEO of Flexport and joins us now from San Francisco. Ryan, great to have you on the show. Um, freight is a what trillion-dollar industry that I think still operates on twenty-first, sorry, twentieth-century uh, technology. You aim to change that. Just explain how Flexport works.
6: Yeah, so, well, anytime you want to ship something around the world, there's this complex chain of different companies that has to come together to move it. You can think about a factory, an importer, at the simplest case. But remember, there's trucking companies on both sides of the ocean, a port. you got to clear it out of customs in one country and into customs in another, put it on a ship. That whole end-to-end process is traditionally in the normal what's called freight forwarding industry. It's run on paper. It's almost like freight email forwarding relay race of documents and PDF attachments. And so what Flexport does is build technology to bring all these parties together, make it seamless for data to flow in parallel so the goods can move seamlessly and try to get them into the country fast and, you know, in time for Christmas is what we're all focused on right now.
0: So... By moving all the data and all the sort of transactions and ticking of boxes, basically, to ensure everything's where you think it is at any given point in time, um, you sort of make that far more efficient in terms of the flows of these goods around the world. I guess you can also help with costing and find the cheapest routes. And I guess something else that I know you can track is the carbon footprint, which, given our conversations today in the show and generally, quite frankly, I think is something that everybody's very much focused on at this moment as well.
6: Yeah, all the all of these things are available. And, and I think, you know, one of our premises is that your data, your supply chain data is, is really valuable just outside of your supply chain team, mm. your finance team cares about it, your ESG team cares about it. There's uh, marketing teams want to know where's my stuff, right? Everyone and everyone, even customers want to know where's my stuff. And, and it's really been trapped in inboxes uh, for, for hundreds of years It's like sort of the process hasn't changed much. Of course, email uh, helped, but We haven't moved much past that since sort of 1980s technology.
0: Yeah, that's what I was saying, sort of 21st century technology on an industry that's forever growing and increasingly complex. Um, We described it in your words as sort of a global traffic jam, what's going on. Just elaborate further. How bad is what you're seeing out there?
6: Yeah, and so uh, specifically, you're seeing a big backup at ports. O- over 77% of the world's ports right now have significant delays of ships in congestion waiting. Like I said, a traffic jam of ships just waiting for their turn. Uh, the port of Long Beach is the worst in the United States right now, where you ha- and that's our largest port, LA Long Beach Complex. And you have 68 ships at anchor right now, meaning they're not even unloading. There's 30 ships unloading, and there's 68 ships waiting their turn. This is highly unusual. Before the pandemic, there would almost never be a reason for a ship to wait. They would be able to pull right up and, and unload as soon as they got to port. So it's um, this is a real problem. American businesses have billions, of, billions and billions of dollars worth of merchandise sitting on those ships in containers waiting to unload. Uh, and it's a big part of why consumers are having trouble finding things that they're looking for in the stores right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the United States and it's just one piece of the jigsaw puzzle. I know you have, what, 10,000 clients in over 200 different countries. Um, I, I know it's hard to visualize this, but I'm sure this is part of your plan. If the entire system operated on the cloud... And I know that's a challenge. So even if we we're just talking at the largest container ships and those with the associated trade and obviously the trucks and things, would the situation today look very different? Because there are pieces of the supply chain here that are broken, whether it's truck drivers, for example, and then that has a back, a backing up effect. Would we be far more efficient today with your technology in a greater scale?
6: Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that a technology moving these processes to the cloud, allowing for smoother communication, for data to flow between parties is gotta, is gotta be the solution here. I mean, of course the government needs to invest in infrastructure and building bigger and deeper ports and more rail connections and all these things. But the reality is that'll take a long time. And the technology's here, yeah. it's easy to adopt. And we need data to flow because let's say there's a backup at the port where right now there's a traffic jam both of ships waiting to get in, but also truck drivers are, are spending hours. We, we estimate about six hours right now for a truck to get into the port. And that means they can't hit their container appointment number. And a a cloud-based system would be able to dynamically assign appointments and assign a container to the truck that's available. Right now they have to go for a specific container, try to find it somewhere deep in the stack. It takes way too long and it's leading to these traffic jams very simple the technology already exists we've already built it and so i think the um and that's just one example across the chain of where cloud-based technology can really help push this supply chain forward
0: yeah that's like a gig economy based approach to something that at the moment is incredibly sticky and and laborious um just in terms of the numbers for Flexport, talk to me about the kind of growth that you've seen, even just over the last eighteen months. Since a lot of us have been buying things online versus going into stores and things, just what kind of growth and demand and conversations are you having with customers?
6: Yeah, so Flexport's managed to grow our revenue almost eight x in the last four in the last three years, um, and, wow. and a lot of that's been driven by uh, adoption of e commerce. We, we ship for most of the direct to consumer e commerce businesses in the United States. Uh, or the, the big, the fast-growing, up-and-coming ones. And, uh, and their growth has really accelerated through the pandemic. And we've, we've been proud to play a part in that, helping them run a modern supply chain, running, sort of giving best-in-class tools to fast-growing, smaller businesses. Um, and yeah, so the growth has been crazy and it's been really hard. Uh, the last year with all these uh, delays has led to almost three times more exceptions An exception is uh, when a human has to intervene in a shipment and that rate has gone up 3x because of all the delays, ships not meeting their sailing schedule, traffic jams, uh, all kinds of problems on the supply chain have increased our costs quite a bit as well.
0: Yeah, I I can only imagine. No time for sleep, quite frankly, the way that you've been working. And I love the book behind you, by the way, The Big Ship and the Little Digger, with all the other ones. That reminds me of the Suez Canal blockage, something else that everybody's been dealing with. Um, Ryan, keep in touch, please. We want to see how you're doing. Uh, And uh, thank you so much for your time today. Ryan Peterson, CEO of Flexport there. Thank you. Okay, coming up here on First Move, a bold new green investment by one of the global energy giants. We'll speak to the CEO of EDP about their ambitious plans next. Welcome back to First Move. The United Kingdom announcing a major green investment from foreign companies and one of their firms is Portuguese energy giant EDP, which plans to invest up to $18 billion by 2030. EDP, with over 70% of its power coming from renewable sources, currently operates in around 20 different countries, including the United Kingdom, the United States, Brazil and Vietnam, among others. And joining us now is the CEO of EDP, Miguel Stilwell-Dandrada. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show. This is a huge investment in the UK and I know you've been operating there for what, more than a decade. Um, Talk to me about your desire, your reasoning for making this investment, what incentives you were perhaps provided and how quickly you can be up and running there.
7: First of all, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I mean, we are a leading renewable player globally, as you mentioned, in 20 countries and we've been investing over the last two decades in renewable energy. So the UK government has come out with a, an ambitious 10 point plan relating to investments in, in the UK specifically in the green economy. Uh, and we are obviously very excited about that. We've been in, in the UK as you mentioned for 10 years now investing in offshore wind power. So we have an ambitious plan for over the next decade to invest around 13 billion pounds as you mentioned around $18 billion. So that's mostly going to be an offshore um, mostly up in Scotland, but uh, all, potentially also uh, down in England. Um, and we are also investing in onshore wind and solar. So essentially we are one of the third, uh, fourth largest uh, renewable operators globally. And so obviously the UK is a great market for us. We're very comfortable with the regulatory framework. We're very comfortable with the macro environment. And so it's a, it's a great place to invest.
0: Just in terms of the technology, and we've spent a lot of this show talking about making it manageable in terms of cost of investment versus balancing the rising cost to a consumer perhaps of of all the investment that needs to take place i know you're pioneering a floating wind farm in portugal and having conversations about whether or not that's scalable i mean the last time i checked the uk has a lot of water what are the prospects of using some kind of floating wind farm is it cheaper why talk me through this because this is something i've not really seen before
7: so, first, I think the more mature technology is bottom fixed uh, offshore uh, wind power. So that's what's being installed in most of the countries, yes. um, not only in, in Europe, but also sort of on the east coast of the US. There's a lot of projects going on. Floating is a earlier stage technology, so it is still more expensive. But there is a, a project up in Scotland, so one of the tenders which is going on, which is looking to explore precisely large scale uh, floating offshore technology. So we've been investing in that for a while. We have a, a pre-commercial project down in Portugal, 25 megawatts. But this is going to be the first opportunity to really scale that up over the next decade. So having floating uh, wind turbines um, off the north of, uh, of Scotland. So that's something that we're very excited about. As I say, costs will have to come down, but we think it will be a viable technology towards the end of this decade. And then it could take off also many other countries. So it's not just the UK. But it is, for example, applicable also on the west coast of the U.S., Asia, around Japan, South Korea. So there are a lot of countries that could also adopt this type of type of technology.
0: Yeah, I mean it's brilliant to see sort of the innovation that's going on in this space, whether we're investing for today or investing for the future. It's um it's fantastic. Yeah. One area that I did notice as well, moving away from the U.K. is is Brazil, and we recently spoke to the economy minister briefly, I will admit, about their plans for sustainability. But I think Brazil's sort of got a bad name. Uh, in, in recent years due to the scepticism, let's call it that, from um, President Bolsonaro. How easy is it to invest in Brazil and how encouraging, can I ask, has the government been of your investment plans there?
7: So I have to say that Brazil, from a, from a regulatory point of view in the electricity sector, is actually quite stable and predictable. And, and right. we've been invested in Brazil for 25 years now. Yeah. Obviously, Brazil has uh macro issues exchange rate issues but from a fundamental basis on sort of the actual sector um, it's actually very good so um we've been investing mostly over the last couple of years in wind and solar and in, in, in brazil we have around 1500 megawatts either built or being built as we speak and so it's a great country it's got a lot of resources a lot of sun a lot of wind uh, and that's actually been one of the big bets
0: Oh, I think we've lost him there. Um, What a shame. We'll get him back because I had, uh, as you can well imagine, plenty more questions there. The CEO of EDP, I apologize for that. Um, Yes, challenges of live TV. Okay, we're going to take a break. Coming up on First Move, turkeys, the gift that keeps on giving. How my conversation with Anna Stewart yesterday was gobbled up by First Move fans. Yes, that was a moment. (laughs) We're back after this. Africa's transformation into a hub of technological innovation is well underway. IT giant IBM has been working on the continent for nearly a century. And in today's Connecting Africa, CNN's Eleni Jokos sits down with IBM's regional head, the first ever woman and the first African to hold the post.
8: In the next 10 years, every organization is going to be a technology company because technology is at the forefront. is the bedrock of innovation right now.
1: So what is IBM working on? What projects are you involved
8: in on the continent? We are at the forefront of driving digital transformation for banks, for governments, for all institutions. Even during the COVID, we worked with uh, the government in South Africa to devise a solution that helped to identify where the hotspots are. We are working on sustainable farming, help farmers plant sensors in their farms that collect data and helps them to make informed decisions. We're talking about intelligence, we're talking about interconnectedness, we're talking about instrumentation, all of that. It's technology that is driving that.
1: The reality is internet penetration is still sitting only at 40%. Can we talk comfortably about digital transformation when access to internet is still
8: not where it should be? So I totally agree with you, but you know, whenever I get asked this question, I also... Pose the question that I think we are overlooking what we are currently doing on the continent. We have 816 million connected SIMs on the continent, and this is going to increase to one billion in the next four years.
1: The Telco link that you're you're focusing on.
8: Yes, but that is connectivity. If you have your SIM card connected, you are connected, right? So we have to look at the penetration of smartphones onto the continent as well, and that is also on the rise. But so I want to take you to a scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, in a village, in the middle of you know, the hills in
1: Rwanda, outside Kigali, is a mother who only has a cell phone that she shares with a group of other mothers, and it's, it's an analog phone.
8: How do we connect her? How do we bridge the digital divide on the continent? So that's a great question. So we actually are developing apps that even with analog phones, you can still tap into this technology. There are short codes for analog phones. So Africa development is not focused on just the cities. We are looking at the people that are in the remote areas. We are looking at how we bank them. We are looking at how we include them in the financial sector. We are looking at how they become part of this digital transformation. That lady, that woman with that analogue phone, trust me, she's not left behind.
0: And finally, on First Move, viewers of yesterday's show were treated to a live report from This British Farm about supply shortages. Video of our Anna Stewart with these talkative turkeys was pecked up online. Here's a bit of it.
4: <laughs> These turkeys are great fun. They are very vocal if you clap. Wow. I mean, in some ways they're a great audience. But, um,
0: <laughs> My eyes. After that went out, Twitter did not let us down. Look at what this viewer made out from it.
3: So no one told you that was gonna be this way.
0: repurposing the clapping in the friends theme. I call that genius and I could not stop laughing at this. And I know the same goes for Anna too. So we do thank you for one, watching, and two, your creativity. And before we go, I asked you for your ideas for a new name for Facebook. And once again, you did not disappoint. Here are some of the potential names that you tweeted to me. Fact check book, spy book, face wash, face verse, narcissism network. someone's going to tell me I'm skating on thin ice there and my self-declared winner face palm yes face palm palm and yes okay stay safe connect the bar with Becky Anderson is next and I will see you tomorrow